Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with legendary skateboarders and my close friends, Mike McGill and Steve Caballero. Well, folks, you're in for a treat this week, especially if you're a skateboarder. Maybe more accurately, I should say I was in for a treat having these guys in my studio. Mike and Steve were two of the founding members of the most famous skateboard team in history, the Bones Brigade, founded by legendary skater Stacy Peralta. As a kid growing up in Southern California, skateboarding was my passion, and I witnessed both of these guys change the sport I loved from a street corner pursuit to a worldwide phenomenon that has influenced popular culture, changed our athletic landscape, and is now unbelievably an Olympic sport. Mike and Steve grew up on opposite coasts, but their shared love of skating and a call from Stacy brought them together. Now, 40 years later, Mike and Steve are in their mid-50s and little has changed. They're still great friends, they still skate together, and they're still pushing each other to be better. The Bones Brigade was a makeshift family, a group of teenage boys with Stacy as the father figure at the helm. Under Stacy's mentorship, Mike and Steve turned pro at 15 years old, which meant traveling, competing in contests, and making videos. Juggling school with the demands of the sport was hard for both of them. Steve's grades dipped, and Mike's principal called his parents to reprimand him for missing too much class. But they both knew what they wanted to do, and they were already earning a living. A good living. When the Bones Brigade hit their peak in the early 90s, Mike and Steve were earning way more money than their parents, and they were traveling the world like rock stars. It gave them a perspective that few kids get, and it also solidified their identities forever, which caused both growing pains and afforded them a life of doing what they love to do. Mike and Steve's other passion is motocross, so you can understand why I like these guys. We get together most Mondays to ride dirt bikes at various motocross tracks around California, and as a result, I have been afforded a unique perspective on how they approach fear, injury, aging, and passion. We get deep into those topics on the show, and I come away with a new respect for them and a renewed desire to throw caution to the wind in pursuit of a life well lived. Mike and Steve join off camera to talk about accepting that suffering is part of the journey, the pressure that comes with creating new tricks, and how they hazed Tony Hawk when he joined the Bones Brigade. All I can say is, don't ever accept gum from Mike or Steve. You don't know where it's been. So pull up a chair and listen in. Mike Miguel, Steve Cavallero, welcome to Off Camera. Thank you. The show where Hello. I get to talk to my childhood skate heroes <laughs> and put them on national television. Yes. Thanks for doing this, guys. I wanted to have the two of you guys on together because besides being childhood skate heroes, because I was really into skating and I competed and I was right at that age where the Bones Brigade was my sweet spot. And I had Tony Hawk on this show. I've had Stacy Peralta on the show. And, but... People should know that in the last couple of years, the three of us have become friends, and we ride motorcycles together. That we do. We ride dirt bikes on motocross tracks, and, uh, and it's been a pleasure for me to get to know you guys, but I realize in all the times we sit around, you know, with dirt in our teeth and beef jerky in our hands, <laughs> um, we never really talk about your past and your history, and I'm so curious about it. So I wanted to start with, did you guys ever think you'd be not only skating at age 55 together, but still friends and still kind of doing the same thing you were doing when you were, you know, 10 years old? Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> it's crazy because, you know what, Stacy Peralta asks us this all the time. You oh, know? really? Like, now, like, we should say Stacy Peralta started uh, the Bones Brigade. He 
put the team together and mentored you guys and made videos and he's been sort of your second father your whole life almost i would say almost like a big brother to us yeah. i mean right. he was kind of the guy to to show us the way what he did and where what we could do right know? but it's funny that steve and i have known each other since we were like 13 or something you know it's <laughs> funny i there's a i was just watching future primitive which was the second bones brigade video and there's shots of you guys kind of messing with each other on, on the top of Lance Mountain's rollout deck. <laughs> and it, it looks yeah. the same as now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Nothing has changed. Look, he's still competitive, let me tell you. Very yeah. competitive. But so am I sometimes. So. And he's still stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's I been... I feel a, like this is relationship. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a great, great relationship. And um, we've done so many things over the years, traveled together, yeah. um, compete against each other. But the best thing about our relationship now is we're older, we have kids. Um, I live really close to Mike now. I've been a NorCal dude for a long time. Right. Just moved to SoCal five years ago. So I'm actually really hanging out with Mike more now than ever before because back in the day when we were doing the videos and contests, I only see Mike at contests. He was in Florida. I was in San Jose, and we'd meet, and we'd do our photo shoots or contests, and then we'd just split up. So everyone thought that we were all grouped together, but we were all really far away from each other. Very far. That's interesting. So do you each recall the moment you became aware of each other? I think it was, well, Stacy told me on the phone, hey, we have another new guy on the Bones Brigade. His name so is who, Steve So who was on the team first out of the two of you? Me. Mike. Really? Yeah. I, I saw him in Skateboarder <laughs> Magazine. Like, the first thing I've seen of Mike was, like, um, a centerfold in Skateboarder Magazine doing a layback air. And, like, I'd never even seen a layback air in my life. And to see this guy do this trick where, I like, how did he get in this position? Right. And he was on the centerfold. Of- yeah, well, actually, Stacy Peralta, I came out to California with uh, Alan Gelfin, who invented yeah. the Ollie, uh, just on a trip. Hey, do you want to come, Mike? I'm going to stay at Stacy Peralta's how house. How old were you at I this was point? 13. I okay. don't know what my parents were thinking, like. I think right. he lied to them saying we were going to stay at his uncle's the whole time. I think we spent an afternoon at, at his uncle's. That was it. We just traveled all around to Del Mar or whatever. Um, we skated Marina Del Rey. Stacy said, hey, um, there's this uh, photographer who wants to take some pictures of you. You're doing this layback air trick. Anyway, he called me about three weeks later in Florida and said, hey, there's this little picture of you in Skateboarder Magazine. I said, Wow. I skated six miles to the drugstore to get, you know, to look. I'm looking through the magazine twice. I'm like, man, it must be small, but I don't care. You know, my friends are going to freak out. Any kind of picture. I couldn't find it, and then I opened the centerfold. Wow. <laughs> Most people at that age are buying a different centerfold to look at. Right. No, nothing about that <laughs> So you see him in the magazine, and you're like... But I had no connection with Stacy at all at that time. Okay, so how did you get involved with the Bones Brigade? I went to a contest in Southern California, Escondido. Okay. And entered this contest and actually ended up getting fifth. As an place. amateur, just total amateur. Yeah, and Stacy was one of the judges. And then after the contest, Stacy approached me and, and another teammate who got first, saying, hey, I'm starting this new company. Uh, it's called Pal Peralta, and we want you to be part of the team. And I was like, first I was just dumbfounded, just like meeting him, and, you know, because I just read, read about him in Skateboarder Magazine. And how old were you? I was 14. Okay. And I said, oh, okay, well, let me go home and ask my parents if I could, you know, ride for your team. And then he said, well, you know, I'm going to come up to Winchester. They have a pro contest. I'll come up there in a month, and uh, you can talk it over with your parents, and then uh, you can give me an answer there. So he sort of had this whole 
recruitment plan, and he was he was handpicking his team from throughout the country. He was, yeah. And I think, you know, it was kind of the, the first time for him because he was such a legendary guy. Yeah. But, I mean, like, he had to take that role on to, like, now I'm, what else do I do? I, I, I want, you know, I'm in skateboarding. I want, I want to see this company succeed. And so he decided not to get, like, established older guys. He was like, I'm going to find the most talented young kids, and I'm going to, like, mentor them or, or shepherd them through and, and like because I because I did want to ask you guys if there was a point when you both noticed that you were different than the other kids at the skate park in terms of either your level of commitment or or your ability I did like do the self-realization of like man I've only been skating for like a year and a half and I'm already sponsored by a, a skate park and I'm traveling and I'm doing these contests so I did look back at that time frame of when I first went to my first skate park which was the Concrete Wave in Anaheim. I don't know if you remember. That's my first skate park. Really? It was my first membership was Concrete Wave. Yeah. <laughs> and same with mine. And like, wow. I never had gone frontside and they had the snake run in there that you had to go frontside. So it took me a while to, to make it. Um, but I could do kick turns and I went in the pool and I got all the way up to the tile. So that was my start, but there was no skate parks at all in Northern California. So your parents, would they bring you down to Southern California to skate? No, it was only one time. Oh, one time. So I was going to Disneyland. I'd come to Disneyland. I was a huge fan of Disneyland, and, and uh, we'd go every, every summer with my dad, and I saw the skateboard park, and I'm like, Dad, can we go to this park next time we come down? I'm like, yeah. So he took me and my best friend, and I fell in love with it, you know, and I just, like, skateboard, like, concrete sk- like, skate parks are cool, like... I wish we could have one, and then sure enough, like I think a couple months later, six months later, um, Winchester Skate Park and Campbell Skate Park opened. And, and then and I was. And did you like, start living there? Pretty much. Like I was on. Were the, you the kid that was the last one there when they were closing? And... I was the guy, first kid there, and then last kid le- that would leave. So I would be there from like nine until nine. And what were your parents like? What did they think of the whole thing? Did they think you were just. It was like daycare. I guess for them, you know, it was right. like some place I could hang out, and they were just stoked that I, I was excited about something. It started off on just weekends. I, I would dream about going through the whole week to go to the skate park, and then once I got on the team, uh, that equaled free skate. I didn't have to pay to skate anymore, so I would go after school and skate every day. And take, how about you, Mike? Were you were you kind of the same story in Florida, or well, being in Florida on the East Coast, we were last to get everything. So we started skating in the street, lawn tramps, but the skate park of Tampa was an hour away. Okay. So when I found out there was a skate park, of course I wanted to see, I never, I'd never seen a skate park except in Skateboarder Magazine. We started going there and then I just started getting all my friends on the block into skating like, we, you guys gotta s- come skate this place. And then pretty soon we had like a rotation of like five guys that one parent would drop us all off and the next parent would pick us up that night you know and it was just all week waiting to go to the skate park you know? and did you notice that you were getting better quicker than your friends or um no not really you know i think i was kind of a late bloomer i didn't really grow until uh junior late junior high school and uh, and actually during high school i was i was actually worried that i was getting growing too big to skate because steve has always been small and agile. Hey, watch it, buddy. Until, <laughs> wait a minute, until I went skating with a childhood friend of yours, Neil Blender. Oh, yeah. Who's, who's six foot four at the time. Yeah. And uh, I stayed at his house in Anaheim, and we skated this little, like, planter. Uh, sa- Sadlands. Sad yeah. yeah, you know it. 
And I was just amazed that this guy could skate it like a giant vert ramp. And I was like, I don't think I have anything to worry about. I, I think I'm good, Steve. What's the picture for each of you that sort of illustrates your love back then for skating, like your obsession with it? Well, I, th I think the fact that once we started skateboarding at the parks and I started accumulating different friends, like, that, like I first got introduced to rock and roll at the skateboard park. Okay. I was not a fan. You know, I lived on the east side and it was basically soul and disco and R&B, you know. Um, but as soon as I got to the skateboard park, it was like, what are you guys listening to in the ghetto bus? Oh, ACDC, Cheap Trick. I'm like, and I wanted to be, I, want, I wanted to fit in. So I went to Tower Records and I got my first ACDC tape, you know, uh, Cheap Trick, uh, Aerosmith. And I fell in love with rock and roll because that's what skateboarders listen to. And same with, I, I showed up in uh, Nikes and I saw everyone was wearing Vans. I'm like, I got to get the skateboard shoe. So I went, they had a, a van store there. And <laughs> Not much has changed. <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly right. So, um, you know, and I just wanted to fit in. And I felt like it was another family uh, apart from where I grew up. And I found like with skateboarding, I feel like I didn't have to have a certain physique, you know, to be good at it or to learn tricks. And I didn't have the pressure of a coach telling me what to do. I just felt like the more I put my heart and, and soul into it and work on these things that um, I admired through magazines, that I could accomplish these things that these guys were doing. So skateboarding was something that I felt like that was a part of me and that was something that I could excel in. Yeah, how about you, Mike? Yeah, I guess, you know, during junior high school, like skateboarding was getting popular, you know, and all my friends on the block were skating, you know, which was great. But then, you know, things kind of settled down, and that was kind of a down time for all of us. Uh, I, I still loved skating, you know. All the parks started closing. Right. I was like, oh, man, I just, you know, I, what are we going to do? So I was just always looking for the next trip to go to California and skate all these wonderful skate parks. And then in high school, I remember I had built my own ramp, and then, uh, you know, I had to skate by myself for almost a year. Nobody would come around to skate. I tried. So how would you motivate yourself when you're just by yourself? Because skating with a friend was a hundred times more fun than skating by yourself. Oh, so much better. But if I didn't have that contact with Stacy and Stevie and other guys to talk to, hey, what are you doing? What are you, what are you working on? Whatever. You know, if I didn't have that, I, I, I probably would have went crazy or I'd just stopped skating, you know. Right. And then, you know, all of a sudden there was like a new group of guys that would came by one day and they're like, hey, can we try your ramp out? And I was like, of course, yeah, please. You know? And I remember my principal telling, you know, sending a note to my parents saying, hey, this kid can't miss that much school. And oh, you blah, were missing blah, blah, school because you were traveling for contests? Yeah, like I'd go, like I'd go away for the weekend to meet him for a contest, <laughs> uh, you know, on a Friday afternoon or whatever. And Stacy would pick us up. We'd go to Upland, skate a contest, be back, take the red-eye flight on Sunday night, be back in school in Florida you know, just probably at homeroom. And my friend like, where'd you go this weekend? Oh, I was out in California skating. What? <laughs> you know? So tell me about that when it got serious and, and Stacy talks to your parents and like for both of you, is there a memory of when you realized like, oh, th I'm a professional and this is my life. And, like, I, I'm curious pro. about when. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well we turn pro. Turn pro. <laughs> yeah, okay, well. Actually, at, uh, at age 15. Uh, yeah. So you 15? turned pro at age 15. Yeah. Yes. Steve and, and I, how did that go with the parents and with school and, 
you know. Didn't go too well. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> School-wise, it didn't go right, too well. Yeah, right. Right. I mean, f- uh, freshman, sophomore year, A's and B's. As soon as we started traveling together and started doing all these contests, <laughs> grades started to drop. Right. But we were actually making money. So we were making money being in high school more than a lot of people were. And then my parents were like, well, aren't you going to go to college? Like, I'm like, well, yeah, of course. So did you keep your grades up throughout the... I did somewhat, but that was the thing. Like, the, the teachers would get mad uh, because they'd have to provide me with work when I'd go travel. And they were complaining to the principal, and the principal complained to my parents. I'm like, what do I do, <laughs> you know? In your head, were you like, I don't need school because... I'm skating and this is blowing up. We were very focused on our careers as amateurs and then we turned pro. Then we started making money, you know. I started making money at age 15. By the time I graduated age 17, my mom asked me the same question. It's like, okay, mijo, like, what are you going to do now? I'm like, mom, I'm doing it. <laughs> I'm making money, like you know, skateboarding, this is what I want to do. Well, during high school, we made a little bit of money. It was, it was a lot of money for high school kids, sure. but not a lot of money in the world. So after, you know, uh, I told my parents, I'm like, look, Stacy has all these trips planned for us. We're going to be traveling. I think right out of high school, we were gone six months from our house. Mm-hmm. Stevie and I went to Sweden, taught a summer camp for three weeks for all these kids in Europe. And we went to Spain. I got picked to double some guy in a movie. I think it was uh, John Wayne's son, Ethan, really cool. So anyway, I got there, and the writer, Len Wessler was his name, he, he took a liking to me, and he's like, Mike, you, I'm just going to make you a part in here. You just get in there with those guys. I was like, what? I'm not an actor. So then he says, uh, do you know any, like, skateboarders, kind of a little bit smaller, maybe a little Spanish-looking? <laughs> I'm like, I know just the guy. I just spent four months with him. <laughs> Boom, they flew him over 24 hours later, and we spent seven and a half weeks in Spain in this beautiful like, This is how cool my parents place. are. Like, he calls me, he says, hey, you want to go to Spain and film a movie? <laughs> hey, Mom, can I go to Spain? <laughs> <laughs> the next day, I'm getting a flight and heading to Spain. Do you think it was just a different time and, and in terms of uh, parents letting their kids sort of go out and make their way in the world? Back in the 70s, you could get away with a lot more than you can now. <laughs> Like, I mean, when I first got on Powell, while he's taking flights to California, I'm taking bus trips from NorCal to SoCal. Really? Yeah, I would get on the bus at midnight from San Jose, get to Santa Barbara at 6 a.m., catch another bus, and get to Santa Monica at 8 a.m. And I can't believe that my parents let their little 14-year-old son on a bus all by himself. On an overnight bus. An overnight bus. And I used to do that. So when the Bones Brigade really blew up, I wondered how it felt from the inside when those videos came out and 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 it sort of that that wave of skateboarding reached its peak. Actually, Stacy, I don't know if you remember this. He told us once in the blue Volvo. <laughs> he's like, "Guys, you guys are going to be in these videos. Okay? They're they're new. They play them, you know, it's, it's like you'll see like TV. You're going to see yourselves on TV. And you guys are going to you like kids are going to come up to you and they're going to ask for your autograph. I'm like, Stacy, come on, man. Like, really? You know, it was that, like, it was, he goes, no. It was totally, he goes, you were naive about the whole thing. Yeah. And we were just like, all right, Stace, whatever. Steve, what's the picture of the craziest it got during Bones Brigade for you? <laughs> um, <clears throat> I think it was, 
It was that tour that we did in England. I think we're a little bit late to the demo because we had to travel all through the country and need to go to these different demos. And I remember we were in the van and we're getting to the park and we see people walking and we're out the window yelling, we're here, we're here, don't go, don't go. And we thought that because they thought we were going to show up, so you thought they were leaving? We thought they were leaving because we they thought we were going to show up, but they were actually getting kicked out because as soon as we got to the park, you couldn't even see the park. There was so many kids, they covered the whole park. So even if we got out, we wouldn't even be able to skate the park because there were so many kids on the park. So what'd you do? The guy who was putting the demo on, we, we pull up and he's like hitting the, like, go, go, don't get out. That's because the, uh, the police <laughs> were there and they said, if you got, any of you guys get out, we're going to arrest you, you blokes. <laughs> <laughs> really? So we, yeah. we took off. So we, literally, it was like the Beatles. Pretty right. much. Yeah. <laughs> and this was after Animal Chin came out. Right. So, so Animal that, Chin was we were, the third video. And, yeah. And that's when it was sort of like, it that's was on when the we were like, scale of... Yeah, yeah. That's when we were like rock stars to, right. to the, in the skateboard scene. And, and that's when everyone was buying our boards. And those, that, that, that era... 87, 88 were our huge, hugest royalties from, from skateboards. And right. we were making like, you know, ten to $15,000 a month in that, board sales. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So I watched Stacy's recent documentary about the Bones Brigade. And I was shocked at how serious you guys were about competitions for a short period of time and how, how maybe, how much internal competition there was. Short period of time? I think we're still... <laughs> competitive. Well, yeah. well, the thing is, if you didn't do good, Sam, you weren't going to get flown to places, and you may drop out, and they'll fill your shoes with some young guy that's coming up. And there was a whole group that was trying to take us out for a while because, uh, you know, they they're moving on. They're 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 trying to get the next uh, Caballero, Tony Hawk, whatever. You know what I mean? So did you feel that pressure of, I've got to skate well and I've got to... When I first got on a team, or even before I got on PAL, I knew that if I did well in competitions, that I would get something out of it, whether it was like free skate time at the skate park, free product. When I got on PAL and we started getting introduced to like photographers and stuff, if you did well in a contest, you'd get a photo in the magazine. So that's what was pleasing to me. And the fact that, that I was getting this opportunity from Stacey and George, that I never wanted that to go away. Like I, at a young age, I'm like, this is awesome. I'm not ruining this at all. What do you want me to do, Stacey? I'll do everything for you. Yeah, well, I think we also, uh, we also didn't want to disappoint Stacey as well. I mean, like the Bones Brigade was in the top five for... The longest time I mean and was there internal competition for a while of like a little bit this guy is like a machine he never stops <laughs> I mean he always made the finals and like I I would teeter sometimes I'm like oh man like, I'm gonna have to break out my good run just to get in the finals you know Stacy must have had a profound effect as someone who was older that you could look up to and I understand you not wanting to disappoint him that was a huge thing was I trusted him to follow his every lead and whatever he said. He's been a pro before, he's been there, he knows. So everything that he told us to do, even though we didn't want to do it, just being a teenager, like, what are we doing this for? Um, I would do it. You know, you can just tell a person's personality that they're honest and sincere and they care about you and they want 
the best for you. And he, never, he always wanted the best for us. So we're very fortunate, me and Mike, actually, to have a Stacy in our life, you know, because a lot of other guys in other companies had the same opportunities that we did, except they didn't have a Stacy, you know. So that's why we've succeeded in this is because we've had a mentor that we could trust and, 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 and aspire from. Do you remember coming to him at times when something was very difficult in your life and rather than calling your parents, you called him? Oh, yeah, always. We talked to, talked to him about everything. Really? Oh, everything. What's well, at least I did. I don't know about Mike. <laughs> no, I talked to him too, but I remember, like, I don't know, I don't remember specifics, but like when something was bothering me, he would know. He's like, so what, what's bothering you, Mike? You don't sound like, <laughs> so then I'd have to tell him, well, this is going on in my life, Stacey. Yeah. I didn't want to bother you. Yeah, he was just always there for us and still is, you know, um, when we do get to see him. <laughs> Do you still call he's him? He's distant. Do you still? I, I'll be honest. He's distant, and and you know I wish he was a little bit closer because it's like it's it's it was hard when he left the company. I felt yeah. like like a father figure left, and you know spending this whole decade of um, learning from him, being his friend, um, working with him to when he left the company. Um, actually, a lot of the guys left. I mean, Mike left. Tony yeah. left. Uh, Lance, Rodney. But, but um, even I in see. that time, Steve, you remember him calling each one of us and saying, this is what's happening. I want to make sure that you're, you're good. What are you doing? What's your plan, Mike? What you, what do you, you and know, that was he, the last call. And the, <laughs> <laughs> no, come on. Now we have Instagram. We, we text here and there. But. Well, I think He's just must, being nice. I, I'm <laughs> being honest. <laughs> All right. I think that must be hard to have someone like that who, who came into your life so young and, and really shaped your whole career and then at a certain point yeah people do move on and they go do different things and I think probably George was always looking for one of us to take over Stacy's job to like Lance or I think Cab tried it and I did like, I was team manager for Powell for a while I hated that job because the skaters looked at me and treated me differently and at one point I'm like George I want to step down from I just want to be a writer because I don't <laughs> like the way these skaters are, are, are looking at me and treating me that's such an interesting thing. I, I don't want to. I want to get back to that, um, but I do want to ask. Um, I want to ask about when Tony Hawk got on the Bones Brigade because he was sort of this gangly kid, but he was a phenom from the start. He had all these crazy tricks, and I was curious about how it felt and that progression of who is this kid to? Oh my God, we're witnessing. He was, he was not a threat. He was not a threat <laughs> no. at the beginning. Not at the time. No and, and I'm going to let going to let Steve tell you how we initiated Tony. <laughs> tell me. Whoa. <laughs> we we were, we used to stay at Stacy's house, and uh, he had a hot tub. And after we'd get done skating, um, we'd go in the hot tub, and uh, Tony was there as well. So we kind of hazed him, and we uh, jokingly told him that uh, he wasn't going to be accepted on the team unless uh, he did something for us. Or He's like, what can I do? I'll do anything. <laughs> I'm like, well, let me see your gum. And I stuck it between my toes, and I go, okay, now chew it, and you can be on the team. <laughs> and he did. <laughs> Poor Tony. But he's the one laughing now. That's so, right. That's but right. I think that story is a great illustration, though, of... The difference a couple years, because he's a couple years younger than you guys, the difference a couple years can make. And no one could really probably have predicted 
the rise of his career right when Stacy signed him up. And it's also a testament to Stacy's um, ability to spot talent that he picked Tony over a bunch of other kids Tony's age to put on the team. Stacy was good at scouting talent, and he could see the drive and the passion. And in Tony, he saw that he was very, very passionate of progression. Um, and that's what it takes to be different, is to look outside the box and think differently. And, and I think Tony, still to this day, he does not settle. He's always pushing himself to the next level. And we have a little bit of that as well, but he has a lot of it. And the funny thing is, I'm only recently got to see the, um, his work ethic, because I'm NorCal guy for years. Yeah. I've only been down here for five years. And moving down here and seeing him progress on, going to his ramp, because we skate his, his private ramp all the time. And right. I was like a, a fan on the outside as well. I don't see him at demos. I don't see him at contests. I don't see him at photo shoots. But I wasn't there when he was working on stuff. So when I came here and started skating with him, I could see the struggle. I could see the effort he puts into. I could see the frustration. Uh, and I'm like, whoa, he's like real person. Like, you know, <laughs> he gets mad and angry and frustrated just like us. Do you have a particular memory where he went from the junior member of the Bones Brigade team to, oh, crap. This is, like, he's going to be, he's going to pass us all. 1982, and... he, was, uh, he was getting stronger. He was getting, his airs were getting higher, his consistent. I'm like, yeah, he's, he's coming up. He's a record. He's going to be something. Yeah, and that, he, he did a lot of growing then. He was really, yeah. really tall. He started getting taller than yeah. all of us. Yeah, started like, sprouting. Whoa. How did that feel with you guys being the sort of two elder statesmen of the team and all of a sudden he's winning <laughs> contests? I mean, was there some, did it push you guys to try to get better too when he was pushing himself so hard? Absolutely, yeah. I, I would think that would be, it, it would add to that idea of, oh, we have to keep progressing. Or like you said, other people would come take your spots on the team and mm -hmm. pass you by. Okay, I had the epiphany. <clears throat> when we were filming Animal Chin. When we filmed the last ramp, the chin ramp sequence, right. that was the last thing we filmed for the whole thing. And when it was Tony's turn to film and do tricks for Stacy, that's when I opened up my eyes and I'm like, oh my goodness, this dude has a bag and we don't even come close to that bag. He just kept going and kept going. And I'm like, what, another trick? And then he would like, there was some things that they filmed in the video that he made up like that day. That's when I look back and I go like, wow, this guy is way better than us. And how did that feel? I was like, gotta step on my game somehow. <laughs> you know what I mean? If I wanna, that, I, could, I can see like, okay, this, this is, I'm not at this guy's level. This right. guy is way above and beyond all of us. Because, you know, we filmed all our, our sequences separately and he'd get his chance to do his tricks i get my chance to do my tricks lance and then uh, tommy but but when hawk came on i was like this guy i mean we just sit there take our pads off and just watch because he's just going for hours filming you're like <laughs> trick after trick he's gonna make me eat gum out of his toes now and i'm gonna have to do it <laughs> because the thing with skateboarding and i think with any other sport is it's really it's a lot easier to get to the top and to rise the occasion, but to stay in that spot is the most difficult thing ever because that's the pressure of like, once you get to the top, people expect you to be at the top. Right. So every time you go to a contest, like they think, oh, you're gonna win. And you have this pressure to win because you won the last one. Is that cheapen the fun or does that lessen it's a the fun? Um, well, you know, competition isn't fun. 
it's a lot of pressure. And you want to do your best for your sponsors. Your mind is going and going. And you're thinking about your runs. And you're not even, I've been in concerts where I, I don't even remember what other, anybody else did. I'm like, oh, it's my run again? Okay, don't fall. You know, what, oh, should I do this line, line one or line two? What if I fall? Like, there's so many things going on in your head, it's crazy. Was there a time when you sort of accepted that you, the first place wasn't available because Tony was at that level? It's when this guy invented the 540. Okay. <laughs> That's when I'm like, oh, uh, man. Well, let's talk okay. about that. Let's talk about that. So All let right. me set that up. Fourth and fifth is, look, is looking pretty good now. <laughs> <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. It took me a long time to learn his trick. He, so he invented in, it in 1984. In 1984, you invent the McTwist. And for people who don't know, it's a one and a half backside air. So you do a, a complete flip and then another half turn and come back in. And at the time, I remember I got Trans World Skateboarding Magazine and the, and the, the cover just said the trick. Didn't even say <laughs> what it was. And the, there you were upside down and it was like you had to open the magazine to see the sequence because there was no video, there was no YouTube. Right. And it caused shockwaves through the industry when that trick happened. If you didn't have a 540, you weren't winning the contest. So I want to ask you about that. I know you, you invented it in Sweden, right? Yes. Okay, so tell me about the way it felt the first time you landed that trick. Well, we were teaching a summer camp for like three weeks. Uh, we had this beautiful ramp there. It, it hardly ever gets dark in the summer in Sweden. And uh, I had... I had thought about doing a 540, but uh, I, in my mind, I was like, I just can't do it like low. It's a trick you can't do low. You have to fully go for it, or it's not going to work. Right, there's no working up to it. Like, there's like no working up. You had to do it five feet above the top of the rim. Yeah, I remember just doing every trick I could, and I was like, I was getting kind of bored. I wanted to do something that nobody had ever done because the guys before me, Alan Gilfin, invented the Ollie... Steve Caballero invented the Caballero. Like I, I right. Had not, he invented had the, the first time someone did a 360 in the air. That was you. Exactly. So I was like, you know, I, I, uh, I just thought if I could do this trick out, I taped my wrist guards. I had hip pads in, and there was only two kids that were on the ramp. Everybody went to dinner, and I thought I just want to kind of do it by myself. I just want to see if this is going to work. And I tried a few just messing around. I thought if I could just do one revolution and bail, I could knee slide on my knees down and I'd be safe. But I didn't want to, like, be upside down and fall on my head or, you know. And the momentum just carried me after about, uh, I'd say, within a half hour, I made this trick. Really? I came down and I landed and I was like, whoa, I just made it. <laughs> and I went to look for the kids. I was like, hey. And they already took off running back to the camp to tell everyone. <laughs> and uh, then they got Lance Mountain and Ronnie Mullen and all, the whole camp came out. We got to see this. What are you doing? And Lance, of course, thought it was just going to be a little pirouette in the bottom of the ramp. And uh, it turned out to be a great trick. <laughs> well, I, I think you're, you're definitely downplaying what a magnanimous event in skateboarding that was because when it happened I just remember thinking like well that's it I'm never gonna be <laughs> even close to a pro skater but just being like that's crazy and then within a short few months before I came out to California to debut the trick at a contest it was supposed to be a secret by the way and your buddy Neil Blender would not leave me alone when I got to the parking <laughs> lot I'm like Neil what I can't come on I want to like save this thing 
he would not leave me alone, and I had to do this trick for him in the Del Mar pool. And then, of course, you know, when I got back to the States and started entering the contest again, I was, I was pushed up very high into the uh, finals <laughs> right away. Right. So, Steve, do you remember when you first heard about the trick? Yeah. I did see it in the magazine. I heard about it. Um, and I knew, like, okay, well, that's the progression of the sport. And um, I heard, like, horror stories of, like, Lester Kasai trying it and then, um, it, like, landing on the top with his legs and just being like, okay, that's... Good. Like not knowing where he was in the yeah. air and, and, and yeah. yeah. And at that time, I, I only had a backyard ramp, which was 12 feet wide, you know. So if I was going to learn it, I was going to learn it on my ramp. And um, I tried it a few times there and I just it just didn't feel right to me, you know. So the closest thing I got to 540 back then is we, there was a trick called the unit, which was a Miller flip. You put your hand down and then you twist another turn um, to come in, so it was a frontside 540 with your hand down, and I thought like, well, I got, I got a 540. Let's see, you know. <laughs> but that was the closest thing I could do, and I would still end up in fourth and, and fifth because Tony learned it, Gator learned it, Lance learned it. I mean, if you learn a 540 on McTwist, um, that really brought you up a level, right. and I was satisfied with my placings because I didn't want to go, go there. Right. I just knew it was dangerous, and it wasn't until we did a demo <clears throat> in 1989. I could do this trick where you do a backside ollie revert about vert on coping, and I remember I'm like, you know, what? I'm in this demo. I'm gonna try that thing that Tony does, that 541. It's just only another spin, 180 spin around, and I kept trying, I kept trying, and I'm like, can't even come close. The board's flailing, and I could do this trick called the Les Twist, where you grab, uh, you go fakie and grab behind your foot and come around. So I'm like, you know what? I'm just gonna spin and pretend like I'm in a Les Twist on the way back and come around. And I grabbed it and I came around. I'm like, whoa, it's on my feet. I'm coming around, remember? Yep. So I learned a 540 in a demo. So how he learned a 540 in a half an hour at skate camp, I learned it in a demo. (laughs) <laughs> so once I landed that in the demo, that was the first melon grab backside 540, then I started getting up in placings. And I remember Steve Douglas and Bod Boyle coming up to me and they're like, dude, you're going to win a contest someday because I had just advanced. I just became, you know, a person in their arena where I got a 540 now. Right. Yeah. And sure enough, in 1991, um, the day before Hawk got married, um, we had a contest. I think it was in Newport Irvine, Beach. Or, I think. Newport, yeah, and that's where I released the 540 there, and I ended up winning that contest. What's fascinating about that story to me is that there are certain tricks that you can't work your way up to, and you have to commit to them. For me, it was a backside boneless, and I got that trick, but I was I was never comfortable, and then I wouldn't do it for a week. And then you'd come back to do it again. You'd have to almost learn it all over again. So I guess what I'm asking is when you do a trick like that that has such a high level of commitment and there's no way to work up to it, what is the dialogue in your head of knowing probably you're going to slam and you got to go for it anyway? Like, I think for me, I think the first time when I, was gonna, when I tried the, the 540 twist that day, I got... I got very re- religious because I was like, man, I, I, 
don't want to put myself in, I don't want to get hurt and then I can't skate, you know. But I think for anyone that's wanting to excel, you've got to put yourself in that position. Uh, otherwise, everybody would be doing it, I guess, if it was that easy, right? So how do you take that leap? And how do you stay calm when you're doing that? <laughs> you have to visualize it. It, it, come, it first comes in, um, you have to dream about it, you have to visualize, you have to believe in yourself that you can do it. And once you believe that you can do it without even doing it, you've already done it. And people don't see the progress of what we do behind the scenes. They only see the outcome. They don't see how many times I bail. Like, I bail a lot because I want it to be perfect. And that's why my skateboarding looks the way it, it looks. If people say, oh, Cab, you look so smooth and you do this, I go, because I'm not landing that thing until it feels smooth. A lot of these guys will see our pictures on Instagram and we're oh, look at these guys. They're still skating. Like, how are those guys doing that, you know? But they don't realize that it does take work to do what you love to do. I mean, we ride mountain bikes. We motocross. We, we have to get ourselves in shape to actually skate. Yeah. And then you only feel good when you put the time in because then you're, you know, it's, it's uh, when you do make that trick that you haven't made in years or something new, it's like, wow, I achieved my goal, <laughs> you know? Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation and talk about this week's sponsor, Feels. That's F-E-A-L-S. Now here's the question. Do you experience stress or do you have anxiety or chronic pain or do you have trouble sleeping at least once a week? Well, you're not alone. Many of us do. Personally, I fall in the chronic pain department occasionally considering some of the things I do like riding skateboards and motorcycles. And recently I had a pretty big motorcycle crash. It involved a big jump and a big crash at the end and a lot of pain in my shoulder and ribs. So for the first time ever, I tried Feels Premium CBD. And, you know, I've always been skeptical of almost anything that sounds like a miracle cure. But in the motocross industry especially, people talk about CBD a lot and they swear by it. So I gave it a shot. And let me start by saying Feels is a premium CBD that's delivered directly to your doorstep. And it naturally helps reduce stress, anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness. For me, it helped me sleep a lot better when I had this pain in my shoulder. And for me, there was instantly a reduction in the pain and I could sleep way better. And it's super easy to take. You just place a few drops of feels under your tongue and you feel the difference within minutes. It's super easy to use. And if you're new to CBD, they offer a free CBD hotline and text message support to help guide your personal experience. And it's natural. There's no high, no hangover, no addiction, which are all things that I think if you don't understand this product, you've been worried about. And I felt the same way too, but now that I've tried it, it's an amazing thing and I think that we'll find it becomes much more prevalent as a way to treat things like this. So, it doesn't matter if you're jumping motorcycles or if you just have a little anxiety or you can't sleep or you have chronic foot pain because your shoes are too tight or whatever else may be bothering you. Join the Feels community to get Feels delivered to your door every month. You'll save money on every order and you can pause or cancel anytime. And for our listeners, they're giving us a really special deal. You can become a member today by going to feels.com slash off camera and you'll get 50% off your first order with free shipping. That's F-E-A-L-S dot com slash off camera to become a member and get 50% automatically taken off your first order with free shipping. That's a great deal. And once again, that's F-E-A-L-S dot com slash off camera. Now back to the show. 
you know, six months ago or so, you had a big get off. You had a, a big one. A huge get off. <laughs> I and couldn't get off. That's right. So <laughs> we, were, we were down at Paula Raceway and we were riding the motocross track and I came up behind that crash and you were laying, laying on the ground. You couldn't move. It was really scary. Was I awake? <laughs> you kept asking me the same question. What, what track? Over and over right? What track am I on? You know, where, where am I? What, what track am I on? Did you see it? Did you see it? And you'd obviously had a concussion, but you had broken your femur. And yeah. this was a small tabletop. It's the easiest tabletop on the track. And it really gave me kind of second thoughts about the whole thing because you are the smoothest guy out there in our group. You're the guy that's sort of, you're the fastest guy and the smoothest guy. And I'm like, well, if Steve can go over the bars on that tabletop, we're all in trouble and we don't mm -hmm. know. And, and it made me curious about your relationship with, with fear now because mm -hmm. you're back out at that same track and you're riding and you're doing what you used to do. And I wonder now in your life how you sort of deal with that relationship with injuries or risk versus reward and, and if, it's, you know, if, that, if that's changed at all. It hasn't changed. Um, <clears throat> early on in my career skateboarding, I realized how dangerous skateboarding is and I realized how much it hurt. And you come to a point where you're willing to, to go through the suffering and the pain of uh, accomplishing something great and that feeling that you get. And that's what separates being an athlete and a competitor versus someone who just loves skateboarding or motocross just for the enjoyment of it. Um, you, there's a point you, you gotta go past. And am I willing to suffer? Am I willing to, to take the risk and the pain of it? And I am. I believe wholeheartedly that fear is the one thing that keeps people from being better than yesterday. Uh, to progress in anything, whether it's art, music, uh, relationships, skateboarding, being athletic, that if you can get past what other people think or you get past the fear of judgment, criticism, you can live freely and you can also accomplish more than you could only ever imagine. I think the world could see it as you're taking an unnecessary risk. The age we are on a 250-pound machine and you're jumping up in the air, and why do it? And I think that's the question for someone um, who's got kids and, and wouldn't take that risk themselves. But what you're saying is that the very act of doing that, the risk is worth it to you because it strengthens all these other areas in your life. It just makes me live life to the fullest, to experience. I don't want to live a what-if life. I, I want to experience life to the fullest, and, and suffering is part of living. That's, you have that's, to suffer to live. That's a good answer. Does it ever get, like, tiring to, to face fear every day, or, it, or is that really no, your I think, joy? I think it's, it's, it's challenging to me to see stuff like that, but I forget sometimes when I'm riding a, a motocross track that I should take it easy <laughs> and w look at everything, like, like roll the track, Sam, which I've, whew, I've had some close calls. Do you think you can stay calm when you decide to push yourself a little further without doubting yourself? Uh, no, I think I'm always doubting myself. I think it's because, you know, especially after Steve just getting hurt on that tremendous injury for all of us, I'm like, I, I, I want to be able to ride, you know? But it is a commitment that you have to feel good about, uh, you know, confident that you are, 
you know, ready for that because you can't, you, you know, you can't go halfway on those jumps. It's either all or nothing. And it's, you know. And how I got hurt was I did the ex- very exact thing I always tell these guys not to do is never let off the lip. Right. And always that's keep, exactly keep the throttle on. Yeah. Off the lip. So, you know, even the most wisest person <laughs> makes mistakes and you don't ever listen to your own, own advice. <laughs> right. And even when you go back right. to the Santa Monica skate park, <laughs> I know the feeling you get. You're like, oh, man, this is... This just feels so different. Like, I've, I've been out of it too long. Listen, or how stupid would it be to hurt myself when I've got to pick up the kids in three hours? Or have to, yeah, you know? so I'm going to give you a little bit of advice, Sam. <laughs> oh, you good. go to the park, okay? Don't try to do all those tricks that you did. Go there learning something new, maybe. Trying something different to get yourself going. Because then that'll spur you to go, oh, yeah, maybe I'll do that. Like a 540? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but when I was 18, 20, mid-20s, 50 seemed old. <laughs> it did. <laughs> and it does make me wonder if you guys think about that and how long can you continue to do this? I think our generation is kind of set in those those parameters as far as uh, what you can accomplish at a certain age. And I think the most important aspect of feeling young is thinking young and having that mentality of um, you're not thinking about your age. Like sometimes I forget about how old I am because I don't know what a 55-year-old person is supposed to act and feel like. I just feel like I'm (laughs) doing what I'd normally do. But I think that brings up a good point. Like it's almost like, well, just don't acknowledge it. Just stay a certain age in your head and, and, yes, obviously take care of yourself. But I think that most people take themselves out of things. The thing doesn't take you out of it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. do you still feel young when you're on the bike or you're on the skateboard? When you're doing well. Yeah. <laughs> you're yeah. not crashing. Right. Yes. I'm feeling like Superman. But right. um, I think, uh, yeah, it, you, you have to keep your mind well, because if your mind isn't there, it, you're not going to make it. It brings up a question of identity, because you guys are the ultimate examples of finding the thing you love to do young, and you've kept doing it. And sometimes I think that could be a scary thing in terms of what would you be without these things? What if it was taken away? What if you couldn't do it anymore? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I had uh, an injury about... What was that? Five years ago, we were in, Bondi? Uh, yeah, Bondi in Australia. I uh, I fell in a pool. We were just practicing before, and uh, there was sand in the bowl. I didn't realize, um, and I uh, I got knocked out. And the last thing I remember was Stevie saying, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "I'm getting up." He's like, "Look behind you. There's like a pool of blood." Anyway, went to the hospital. Had to stay there overnight, and uh, and then I had vertigo for almost six months. Really? And I was like, you know, at that point, I was like, I guess this is probably it because I can't even, like, bend over without, you know, falling over. It was that bad, you know, and uh, I had to do some soul searching there because I was just like, wow, you know, like, maybe this is not going to happen anymore, you know? And luckily, six months to the day, it just rapidly went away, you know? Well, that brings up question for you about after breaking your femur and I know you were in the hospital for almost eight days straight or something like that almost two weeks did you have any of those thoughts of maybe I'm done with this or nope no 
No, my, that was the next challenge <laughs> for me. What I looked at is how we look at skateboarding. We've been getting hurt our whole life. Right. <laughs> Part of skateboarding is getting hurt and getting injured. And you're not going to be a skateboarder or a dirt bike rider thinking that you're not, you're not ever going to get hurt. It's, the, it's not a if you're going to get hurt, it's a when. Yeah. So you have to realize that. You know, I, and I still think about it. I'm like, when I go over that jump at Paula, I think about the injury. I think about what I did. Don't do that. And, but once, it's, once that, that jump's gone, I'm looking forward to the next jump to make sure I'm doing the right thing. So all that experience that I have riding is going through my head every time I go around the track. Don't do this. Don't do that. And breaking my femur really made me realize actually how, how dangerous skateboarding is. Because when I posted about it, everyone had talked about like, yeah, I broke my femur, I broke my tibia, I broke my arm, and they were all skateboarding related. And I'm like, dang, like, I don't never think about dropping in a Hawks ramp or the combi thinking I'm going to break something. Never. It never comes into my mind at all. So the thing that doesn't get the person at the next level is we're not thinking about how am I going to get hurt doing this. Someone like is, who's getting introduced to skateboarding is like, okay, I'm going to get on this board. I'm going to drop in this. What's going to happen? Am I going to eat it? You know, and we don't think that way. You can't think that way. Well, you know, it has been an education riding with you guys because you sort of just go out and there's not a lot of discussion about it. You're either going to do it or you're not. And, and I sometimes have to stop myself because one of the two of you will turn to me and say, well, just, just go the same speed as me and follow us off the jump and you'll be good. And then I have to stop and go, well, let's consider the source, you know. Well, you know what? I, I think he has a lot more confidence than I do because I remember him putting me in that position at one of these tracks. He's like, just follow me, Mike. Just, just gas it right off. The, I was like, Steve, I got all this stuff coming up. There's no way I'm going over that thing. And I, w- I refused to do it. And he just, amazing, you know. But when you're ready, you know, then you do it. Yeah. I really respond to what you're saying about sort of accepting the idea that if the thing you do, if suffering is a part of that, then you can't have this expectation that you can do the thing you love and skip the suffering part. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't do the thing you love. Well, tomorrow, tomorrow's not promised. You know, anything can happen. So you just can't live your life in fear of like what's going to happen. Yeah. You just deal with it. But you could also make the argument that no one is making you jump a motorbike 70 feet. Well, we are encouraging it too, so we are making you. <laughs> all right, but you know, <laughs> you know, it's funny that we, we skateboard, we do all this, these crazy ramps and whatever, we ride a little motocross, but people have it in their mind to say, oh, you guys, you guys are daredevils, you know, like your mom, for instance. Sure. But we're you not. my mom? We're <laughs> Dude, why'd you but, have to bring up his mom? Right. Come on. But we're not. I mean, like, I don't like being... I hate roller coasters because I'm not in control of it. But it's part of, you know, for me, um, it's part of my job. I'm paid to take chances. And I ride with a lot of friends that just have jobs that they got to go do daily. Like, uh, you know, I have a friend named Mike who's an appliance guy. You know, another guy, Ron, you know. And what does Ron do? What does Ron do? (laughs) Nobody knows what Ron does. (laughs) You know, you got your show. You know, so if you guys get hurt, you know, you can't do your job. If I get hurt, I got hurt doing my job. 
I'm, I get paid to get hurt. I think that's fascinating that, that <laughs> you get paid to get hurt. The same thing. But that was the same thing you've been telling, you know, the, that's the same thing you've been sort of doing since you were a teenager. And I have the same mindset. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm still a teenager in my Does, Do you ever have these fears I'm immature. Like I'm one a day you wake up and <laughs> like you have to go have a real job? Um, well, you know, and that's funny you say that because I, I believe that I'm, I have a, one of the most real jobs there is. You're right. It's, it's an incredibly real job, but it's, it's one that you invented and one that you keep reinventing. Well, I'm also <laughs> a father. And that's a full-time job. Totally. You know, I have to provide for my family. And this is the only way I know how. And that's if I the did- difference. I go out to the track. <laughs> right. And I'm, I'm like endangering my family. <laughs> and he's providing for his family. Well, we all have kids. So yeah, we know yeah. that. You know what I mean? And, and, and I have to think about that. And, yeah. But also, I'm a father figure. So I have to inspire and encourage and, and be a good role model for them. Yeah. And I love the fact that I, I have the freedom to express myself in these ways that I actually can also encourage my kids to do the same and follow their dreams. I don't have any expectations on them. I don't want them to be anything that I am or, but I do offer these things and say, hey, these are things that you can excel at if you just put the hard work, test it out, you know, try skateboarding, try motocross, try art, let's play some music together. You might fall in love with one of those things and, uh, and if they do, I will support them 100%. Yeah, I think I'm probably the same way with my kids. I provide them the means, and whatever they want to do is fine. And people that come into the shop all the time are like, oh, you want your kids to be professional skateboarders? I'm like, not really, but, you know, if they want to, you know. Yeah. I just want to provide them the means to do something. Yeah. Um, Speaking of this identity of, of finding what you love to do and, and doing it, and it turns into a lifestyle, it turns into a philosophy... There was a time when it all ended and people stopped buying. They did. Their, people stopped <laughs> buying skateboards. Did. People stopped skating. They did. The, you know, the, the, uh, you know if Tony Hawk, for God's sake, was, was at a point where he thought he might become a video editor. And he borrowed money from his parents to buy video editing equipment because skateboarding was over. What did it feel like when... It, when skateboarding was at its lowest and nobody was doing it anymore and the money dried up about your future prospects? Well, uh, I remember it was like uh, 91, right? Mm-hmm. 91 when everything just kind of fell apart and didn't really uh, go the way I thought things were going to evolve. And then all of a sudden it was a, it was a free-for-all. Go fend for yourself, you know, <laughs> like... Um, you know, this is life. You know, did it feel like a mass exodus where Tony went and did his own thing and Lance did his absolutely, thing and, and the family broke up, kind of? Yes, yes. And there was a little, you know, a little bit of uh, animosity with different guys, just going, "Well, how come? You know, didn't they ask us? Hey, do you guys want to come in on our company?" And I had to reinvent myself as well. I had to, uh, I had opened a, a skateboard shop then just a, a year, a couple of years earlier. Yeah. So after. You know, that time when skateboarding was so low and nobody got a paycheck, I, I worked my shop for a while until things picked up. I'm sure there must, have been, there must have been times where there was a lot of uncertainty. Yeah, a lot. I mean, you mentioned that Tony was doing videos. I actually remember I hired him to do one of my videos for one of my little companies I was trying to, trying to make, you know. And, uh, um, yeah, how about you, Steve? What did, what did you? I had a different mindset. 
I made some wise choices before that happened. Uh, in 88, I got signed by Vans. In 1989, they offered a shoe. So I had a signature shoe. Um, and then in 1992, um, we redesigned the shoe and we named it the Half Cab. Right. So I was, as the board sales went down, I was still making money in shoes. So the path that those guys had to go, I, I didn't have that um, pressure of leaving. So I never left PAL. I stayed with the company. And I didn't fight the direction that Escapering was heading. So as I saw that no one cared about Vert, no one cared about uh, a signature anymore, no one cared about um, a vert demo or a vert contest. That everything was all about street skating. So I put the vert board away, and I got a smaller shape and smaller wheels, and I started trying to learn to become a street skater. And I you put, adapted. I adapted, and I put the hard work in, and I just kind of went with the trend of it. And I felt like if I did that, then I could still have a job in skateboarding. And... Um, yeah, so I never, ever felt like this is ending for me. Well, I'll tell you guys, I, uh, I love skateboarding so much when I found it. I think part of that was that it didn't feel like the pressure that I felt everywhere else. It gave me a new social group, and it gave me uh, a creative outlet. Uh, it, we made magazines, we made T-shirts, we made boards, and it was such a huge part of me becoming an independent person who could create my own job rather than feeling like I have to go get a job and create a life much like you guys have. And I wanted to have you guys on here because I feel like you guys showed me the way and showed me a creative path. And um, and I still think it's just so fun to to know you guys and to, to go ride dirt bikes and everything. But I, I've never gotten a chance to really tell you how, how much that time meant to me yeah. and, and how much you guys meant to me. and and. Um, so it's, it's been fascinating to talk to you and <laughs> lovely for me. Thank you. We feel blessed to be in this position and I'm we're sure. definitely flattered to be on your show. You know, and, and hard work equals success. Nothing is just given to you. Yeah. And we've, me and Mike have worked super hard with everything that we've, we've accomplished. And we still, I mean, I speak for myself, I still have that mentality. I still want to work hard because I want to keep enjoying this life to its fullest and, and opportunities will pop up all the time if you just go out wake up put your clothes on you know and attack the world yeah well listen you embody that lifestyle and, and you're inspiring to me so thanks for thanks for coming and sharing thanks for having us buddy. yeah we should have some tacos it. now absolutely <laughs> Hey folks, that's our show. Boy, I love talking to those guys and I love talking to them every week and I love that they let me tag along for all their adventures. Although I think in the end they're going to get me killed. <laughs> but if you want to know more about their story, a great place to start is Stacy Peralta's film, The Bones Brigade, an autobiography. Besides being a great skateboarding team manager, Stacy Peralta is an incredibly accomplished filmmaker who I had on this show way back on episode 10. 
and who has made several documentaries about this sport. There's the first one, which is just called The Bones Brigade. Then there's Future Primitive. Then there's The Search for Animal Chin. Then there's Dogtown and Z-Boys, which is Stacy's film about his own upbringing on his own skateboard team, the Zephyr team out of Santa Monica, California. And then finally, The Bones Brigade, an autobiography, which takes an in-depth look into the lives of Mike, Steve, Tony Hawk, Rodney Mullen, and Lance Mountain, and really chronicles that period. It's a fascinating film, so check all that out. And you can also find Tony Hawk's episode and Stacy Peralta's episode on Off Camera by going to offcamera.com. Now, as you know, we are a podcast, and if you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, take a minute and do that so you'll never miss another episode delivered directly to your feed. But we're also a television show, and you can find us on DirecTV's Audience Network. And if you don't have DirecTV's Audience Network, or if you want to go deep into our archive, the best way to do that is by going to offcamera.com and getting our television subscription service. For only $4.99 a month, you can have access to over 200 episodes of Off Camera, and that includes the Stacy and the Tony episode, of course. And you can watch them as many times as you like on any device of your choosing. So it's a great way to take a deep dive into off-camera and experience all of these conversations and see what you've been hearing. So check all that out. You really support the show when you do that. And it's also a great way to see all of the guests that we've had on the show. You can also find us on social media. We are Off Camera Show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I am Sam Jones on Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. And speaking of Instagram, that's a great way to follow all the behind-the-scenes happenings here at Off Camera. When we finish our conversation, I take every guest we have on the show into my photo studio, and we do a photo shoot. So if you follow me on Instagram, you can see a lot of those pictures and sort of get the complete portrait of what we're trying to do here at Off Camera. I'm also available by email, so if you have a comment or a question or need some advice, usually bad advice, you can send me an email. I'm sam at offcamera.com. But the best way to talk about us and to suggest guests and share your love for the show is through social media. So if you love us, if you like what we're doing, take a minute and tell others about it. We really appreciate it. I also really appreciate everyone that helps me on this show each week. Nathan Shields, Crawford Shippey, Michaela Galvin, Sasha Snow, and Kara Johnson. Without these fine folks, we cannot make this show. And the reason I mention them every week is because, quite frankly, I wouldn't have a show if this whole team wasn't helping me make it. So I'm very lucky in that respect. And I'm also very lucky that you tune in each week. And I encourage you to keep doing that. And we will try to keep making this show for as long as possible. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time off camera.